93 by Victor Hugo Part 1, Book 2 In the spring of 1793, when France, attacked on all her borders at once, had the deeply moving distraction of the downfall of the Girondists, here is what was taking place in the Channel Islands. At Jersey, about an hour before sundown, on the evening of June 1st, a corvette set sail from the solitary little bay of Bonnuit, in that kind of foggy weather which is favorable to flight, because it makes sailing dangerous. This ship was manned by a French crew, but she was part of the English flotilla assigned to keep watch off the eastern tip of the island. The Prince de la Tour d'Auvergne, who was of the house of Bouillon, was in command of the English flotilla and it was by his order, and for an urgent special mission, that the corvette had been detached. This corvette, registered at Trinity House, under the name of the Claymore, was in appearance a cargo ship, but in reality a warship. She had the heavy, placid look of a merchantman, but it would have been unwise to trust this. She had been built for two purposes—cunning and strength— to deceive, if possible, to fight, if necessary. For the mission she had to perform that night, the cargo in the between-decks had been replaced by thirty carronades of heavy caliber. Either from fear of a storm, or because of a desire to give the ship an innocent appearance, these thirty carronades were securely fastened from inside by triple chains, and their barrels were pressed against the plugged hatches. Nothing could be seen from outside. The gun ports were stopped up. The hatch covers were closed. It was as though the corvette had put on a mask. Ordinary armed corvettes have cannons only on the upper deck. This one, made for surprise attack and ambush, had an unarmed upper deck and was constructed, as we have just seen, in such a way as to be able to carry a battery between decks. The Claymore was a squat, bulky ship, but a good sailor nevertheless. She had the most solid hull of any ship in the English Navy, and in battle she was worth nearly as much as a frigate, even though for a mizzen she had only a small mast with a spanker sail. Her rudder, of a rare and skillfully designed shape, had an almost unique curved frame, which had cost fifty pounds sterling in the dockyard of Southampton. The crew, all French, was composed of refugee officers and sailors who had deserted. These men had been carefully selected. There was not one of them who was not a good sailor, a good soldier, and a good royalist. They had the triple fanaticism of the ship, the sword, and the king. Half a battalion of marines, who could be landed if necessary, were incorporated into the crew. The captain of the corvette Claymore was a chevalier of Saint-Louis, the Count du Bois-Berthelot, one of the best officers of the old Royal Navy. The executive officer was the Chevalier de la Vieuville, who had been in command of the company of French guards in which Hoche was a sergeant. The pilot was Philip Gacquoil, the most skillful shipmaster in Jersey. It was evident that the ship had some unusual mission to perform. A man who had just come on board showed every sign of entering into an adventure. He was a tall old man, 
erect and robust, with a stern face. It would have been difficult to specify his age, for he seemed both old and young. He was one of those men who are full of years and strength, who have white hair on their heads and lightning in their eyes. He was forty from the standpoint of vigor, eighty from the standpoint of authority. As he stepped on board the corvette, his sea cloak blew open and revealed that beneath it he was wearing a pair of loose breeches of the kind known as bragu bra, top boots and a goatskin jacket, one side of which was tanned and embroidered with silk, while the other was covered with wild, bristly fur. These ancient jackets were the complete costume of the Breton peasant. They served two purposes, being worn on holidays as well as working days, for they could be turned to show either the furry or the embroidered side. They were goat skins during the week and gala costumes on Sunday. As if to increase a studied and deliberate verisimilitude, the old man's peasant clothing was worn thin at the elbows and knees, and seemed to have seen long service, and his sea cloak, made of coarse cloth, looked as though it might have belonged to a fisherman. On his head he had the high, round, broad-brimmed hat of the period. When the brim was turned down it gave the hat a rustic look, and when it was raised on one side by a cord with a cockade it presented a military appearance. He wore this smooth hat turned down in the peasant fashion, without a cord or a cockade. Lord Balcara, the governor of the island, and the Prince de la Tour d'Auvergne had personally conducted and installed him on board. The secret agent of the princes, Gélambe, a former bodyguard of the Count d'Artois, had supervised the arrangement of the old man's cabin, and although he himself was a nobleman, he had carried courtesy and respect to the point of taking his suitcase and walking behind him. When they left him to return to shore, Monsieur de Gélambe had bowed deeply to the peasant. Lord Balcara had said to him, "'Good luck, General,' and the Prince de la Tour d'Auvergne had said to him, "'Good-bye, cousin.' The peasant was the name by which the crew immediately began to refer to their passenger in the short dialogues which seamen hold among themselves. But without knowing anything further about the matter, they realized that this peasant— was no more a peasant than the warship was a merchantman. There was little wind. The Claymore left Bonnui, passed in front of Boulay Bay, and was for some time in sight, tacking to windward. Then she began to fade into the gathering darkness, and finally disappeared. An hour later, when Gélambe had returned to his house at Saint-Hélier, he sent by the Southampton Express the following note to the Count d'Artois at the Duke of York's headquarters. Your Grace, the departure has just taken place. Success is certain. In a week the whole coast will be aflame, from Granville to Saint-Malo. Four days earlier, the representative Prieur de la Marne, on a mission to the army on the Cherbourg coast, and temporarily in residence at Granville, had received by a secret emissary the following message, written in the same hand as the dispatch above. Citizen Representative, on June 1st, at the hour when the tide is propitious, the war corvette Claymore, 
with a concealed battery, will set sail in order to land on the French coast a man of this description. Tall, old, white hair, peasant clothes, aristocratic hands. I will send you more details tomorrow. He will land on the morning of the second. Notify the cruising fleet. Capture the corvette. Guillotine the man. Instead of going south and sailing toward St. Catherine, the corvette first headed north, then turned east, and resolutely entered the sound between Sark and Jersey, known as the Passage de la Deroute. At that time there was no lighthouse at any point on either coast. The sun had set. The night was dark, darker than summer nights usually are. There was a moon, but vast clouds of the equinox rather than the solstice covered the sky, and it did not seem likely that the moon would be visible until it touched the horizon as it was setting. A few clouds hung down to the sea and covered it with mist. All that darkness was favorable. The intention of the pilot, Gacqual, was to leave Jersey on his left and Guernsey on his right, and by sailing boldly between the Hanois and the Douvres rocks, to reach a bay by the Saint-Malo shore. This route was longer than that of the Manquier, but it was safer, since the French cruising fleet had been given a standing order to keep an especially sharp lookout between saint Elier and Granville. If the wind was favorable and nothing happened, Gacqual hoped that by setting all sail he would be able to reach the coast of France at daybreak. Everything was going well. The corvette had just passed Gronay. Toward nine o'clock the weather began to look sulky, as sailors say, and there was a strong wind and a heavy sea. But it was a good wind, and the sea was heavy without being violent. Now and then, however, a wave broke over the bow. The peasant, whom Lord Balcarat had called General, and whom the Prince de la Tour d'Auvergne had addressed as his cousin, already had his sea legs. He paced the deck with tranquil gravity, apparently not noticing that the ship was being strongly rocked. Occasionally he took a bar of chocolate from the pocket of his jacket, broke off a piece and chewed it. His white hair did not prevent him from having all his teeth. He spoke to no one except for a few brief words which he periodically addressed in a low voice to the captain, who listened to him with deference, and seemed to consider this passenger to be more in command of the ship than himself. Ably piloted, and unperceived in the fog, the claymore skirted the long northern escarpment of Jersey, hugging the coast because of the formidable Pierre-de-Leac reef in the middle of the sound between Jersey and Sark. Gacqual, standing at the helm, successively singling out the Greve de Lique, Gronet, and Piedmont, guided the corvette among those chains of reefs, groping his way, so to speak, but with certainty, like a man who felt at home there, and knew all the beings of the ocean. The corvette had no light forward, for fear of betraying her passage through those closely watched waters. The men were glad of the fog. They reached the Grand Etac, the mist was so thick that they could scarcely make out the shape of the lofty pinnacle. They heard the bell of the steeple of Saint-Ouen strike ten o'clock, a sign that they were still running before the wind. Everything continued to go well. 
the sea was growing rougher because of the proximity of La Corbière. Shortly after ten o'clock, the Count de Bois-Berthelot and the Chevalier de la Vieuville showed the man in peasant clothing to his cabin, which was normally the captain's stateroom. As he was about to go inside, he said to them, lowering his voice, "'Gentlemen, you know how important secrecy is. There must be silence until the explosion. You two are the only ones here who know my name.' "'We'll take it with us to the grave,' replied Bois-Berthelot. "'As for me,' said the old man, "'I wouldn't tell it even if I were face to face with death.' And he entered his cabin." The captain and the executive officer went back up on deck and began walking side by side, talking. They spoke of their passenger, of course, and here is an approximate account of the conversation which the wind dispersed into the darkness. Boisberthelot murmured in La Vieuville's ear, "'We'll soon see if he's really a leader.' "'In the meantime,' replied La Vieuville, "'he's a prince.' "'Almost.' A nobleman in France, but a prince in Brittany, like the La Tremoille and the Rohan families, with whom he's connected. In France, and in the king's carriages, said Boisberthelot, he's a marquis, just as I'm a count, and you're a chevalier. Carriages are far away, cried La Vieuville. We're in the time of the tumbrel. There was a silence, then Boisberthelot said, for lack of a French prince, one takes a Breton prince. Lacking thrushes, no, lacking an eagle, one takes a crow. I'd prefer a vulture, said Boisberthelot. And La Vieuville replied, of course, a beak and claws. We'll see. Yes, said La Vieuville. It's time we had a leader. I agree with Tintagnac, a leader and gunpowder. Captain, I know nearly all the possible and impossible leaders, those of yesterday, those of today, and those of tomorrow. Not one of them has the kind of warlike mind we need. In that devilish Vendée, we need a general who's also a lawyer. He must harass the enemy, dispute every mill, bush, ditch, and pebble, pick quarrels with him, take advantage of everything, watch over everything, do a great deal of massacring, make examples, be sleepless, and merciless. As things stand now, there are heroes in that army of peasants, but no military leaders. Delbay is a non-entity. Lescure is ill. Bonchamp shows mercy. He's kind. It's stupid. La Roche-Jacqueline is a magnificent second lieutenant. Sills is an officer for open country unfit for a war of expedience. Kathleenau is a guileless carter. Stofflet is a crafty gamekeeper. Berard is inept. Boulainvillier is ridiculous. Charette is horrible. And I won't even talk about Gaston the barber. What's the sense of opposing the revolution, and what difference is there between the Republicans and us if we place barbers in command of noblemen? It's because that wretched revolution has infected us, too. It's an itch that France has caught. An itch of the third estate, said Boisberthelot. Only England can rid us of it. And she will, Captain, you can be sure of it. 
In the meantime, it's ugly. Yes, indeed, there are commoners everywhere. The monarchy, which has Stoufflet, Monsieur de Molevrier's gamekeeper, as a commanding general, has no need to envy the Republic, which has Pache, the son of the Duc de Castries' porter, as a minister. What strange adversaries this war in Vendée makes! On one side there's Santerre the brewer, on the other Gaston the barber. My dear Laviaville, I have a certain regard for that Gaston. He didn't act badly in his command of Gaimene. He nicely shot three hundred blues after making them dig their own graves. Good for him, but I could have done it as well as he. Of course, and so could I. Great acts of war, said Laviaville, require nobility in the man who performs them. They're matters for knights, not for barbers. Still, there are some estimable men in that third estate, said Boisberthelot. Take Jolie, the clockmaker, for example. After being a sergeant in the Flanders regiment, he became a commander in Vendée. He had a son who was a Republican, and while the father served in the whites, the son served in the blues. There was an encounter and a battle. The father captured his son and blew his brains out. He's a good one, said La Vieville. A royalist Brutus, replied Boisberthelot. That doesn't alter the fact that it's intolerable to be commanded by a cockerow, a Jean-Jean, a Moulin, a Focart, a Boujou, a Choup. My dear Chevalier, there's the same anger on the other side. We're full of commoners, they're full of noblemen. Do you think the sans-culottes enjoy being commanded by the Count de Conclos, the Vicomte de Miranda, the Vicomte de Beauharnais, the Count de Valence, the Marquis de Custine, and the Duc de Biron? What a hodgepodge! And the Duc de Chartres! Son of Egalité! Ah, when will he be king? Never. He's rising toward the throne. He's aided by his crimes. And hindered by his vices, said Boisberthelot. There was another silence. Then he went on. Still, he tried to bring about a reconciliation. He came to see the king. I was there, at Versailles, when someone spat on his back. From the top of the great staircase? Yes, it was the right thing to do. We called him Bourbon the Bourbeux. He's bald, he has pimples, he's a regicide. Bah! And La Vieville added, I was at Wesson with him. On the Saint-Esprit? Yes. If he'd obeyed Admiral Dorvilliers' signal to keep to windward, he'd have stopped the English from passing. Of course. Is it true that he hid in the hold? No, but it must be said anyway. And La Vieville burst out laughing. There are plenty of idiots, said Boisberthelot. Take that Boulanvier you mentioned just now, La Vieville. I knew him. I saw him from close up. At first the peasants were armed with pikes, so he took it into his head to make pikemen of them. He tried to make them learn military exercises with the pike. He dreamed of transforming those savages into soldiers of the line. He set about teaching them to group themselves in octagonal formations and hollow battalions. He tried to talk the old military language to them. To designate a section leader, he said Cop d'Escade, which was the name for a corporal under Louis the Fourteenth. He was determined to create a regiment with all those poachers. 
he had regular companies whose sergeants stood in a circle every evening to receive the password and the countersign from the colonel's sergeant, who whispered it to the lieutenant's sergeant, who told it to the man beside him, who repeated it to the man nearest him, and so on from ear to ear down to the last man. He once demoted an officer who hadn't stood up bareheaded to receive the countersign from the sergeant's mouth. You can imagine how successful he was. That stupid lout didn't understand that peasants want to be led in the peasant manner, and that you can't make trained soldiers out of savages. Yes, I knew that, Boulambier. They took a few steps, each pursuing his own thoughts. Then the conversation resumed. By the way, is it true that Dompierre has been killed? Yes, Captain. Before Condé? At the camp of Pomar, by a cannonball. Boisberthelot sighed. The Count de Dompierre, another one of us who was one of them. Bon voyage, said La Vieuville. And the king's sisters-in-law? Where are they? At Trieste. Still there? Yes. And La Vieuville exclaimed, Ah, that republic! What havoc for such a trifling matter! When I think that this revolution was caused by a deficit of a few millions— "'We must be on our guard against little points of departure,' said Boisberthelot. "'Everything is going badly,' said La Vieville. "'Yes, La Rouerie is dead. Dudrenay is idiotic. "'What pitiful leaders all those bishops are! "'That Coucy, Bishop of La Rochelle, that Beaupoil Saint-Holaire, Bishop of Poitiers, "'that Mercy, Bishop of Luçon, and lover of Madame Le Chasserie, "'whose name is Servanteau, you know, Captain.' Les Chasseries is the name of an estate. And that false bishop of Agra, whose curé of I don't know what, of Dole. His name is Guillaume de Fauville. He's brave, however, and he fights. Priests, when we need soldiers. Bishops, who aren't bishops. Generals, who aren't generals. Loveville interrupted Boisberthelot. Captain, do you have the moniteur in your cabin? Yes. What plays are being performed in Paris now? Adèle and Paulin and the Cavern. I'd like to see them. You will. We'll be in Paris within a month. Boisberthelot reflected for a moment, then added, At the latest. Mr. Wyndham said so to Lord Hood. In that case, Captain, things must not be going so badly. Everything would be going well if the war in Brittany were well conducted. Lavieville nodded his head. Captain, he said, are we going to land the Marines? Yes, if the coast is on our side. If it's hostile, no. Sometimes war must break down doors, and at other times it must slip in. Civil war should always have a skeleton key in its pocket. We'll do our best. The leader is what matters most. And Boisberthelot added thoughtfully, Loveville, what do you think of the Chevalier de Diouzy? The younger? Yes. As a commander? Yes. He's another officer for planes and pitched battles. Only peasants know the underbrush. Then resign yourself to General Stoufflet and General Cathelineau. Laviaville mused for a moment and said, We need a prince, a prince of France, a prince of the blood, a real prince. Why? Whoever says prince says coward. I know that, Captain, but a prince is needed for the effect he would have on the big, stupid eyes of the peasants. 
My dear Chevalier, the princes refuse to come. We'll do without them. Boisberthelot made that mechanical movement which consists of pressing the forehead with the hand, as though to squeeze out an idea. Well, let's try this, General, he said. He's a great nobleman. Do you think he'll be enough? Provided he's good, said La Vieuville. In other words, provided he's ferocious, said Boisberthelot. The Count and the Chevalier looked at each other. Monsieur de Boisberthelot, you've said the right word. Ferocious. Yes, that's what we need. This is a merciless war. It's a time for bloodthirsty men. The regicides have cut off Louis the Sixteenth's head. We'll tear off the four limbs of the regicides. Yes, the general who's necessary is general inexorable. In Anjou and Upper Poitou, the leaders behave magnanimously. They flounder in generosity, and nothing goes well. In Le Marais and the Retz region, the leaders are ruthless, and everything goes well. It's because Charette is ferocious that he holds his own against Perrin. Hyena against hyena. Boisberthelot did not have time to reply. La Vieville's words were suddenly cut short by a desperate cry. And at the same time, two men heard a noise unlike any noise that is normally heard. The cry and the noise came from inside the ship. The captain and the lieutenant rushed toward the between decks, but were unable to go down. All the gunners were frantically coming up. A frightful thing had just happened. One of the carronades of the battery, a twenty-four pounder, had broken loose. This is perhaps the most frightful of all accidents at sea. Nothing more terrible can happen to a warship on the open sea and under full sail. A cannon that breaks its moorings suddenly becomes a kind of supernatural beast. It is a machine which transforms itself into a monster. That mass speeds on its wheels, tilts when the ship rolls, plunges when it pitches, goes, comes, stops, seems to meditate, resumes its swift movement, goes from one end of the ship to the other with the speed of an arrow, spins around, slips to one side, dashes away, rears up, spins around, slips to one side, dashes away, rears up, collides, smashes, kills, exterminates. It is a battering ram which attacks a wall according to its own whim. Add this. The battering ram is made of steel, the wall of wood. It is matter's entry into freedom. It is as though that eternal slave were avenging itself. It seems that the spitefulness in what we call inert objects has suddenly burst out of them, that they have lost patience and are taking a strange, obscure revenge. Nothing is more inexorable than the anger of the inanimate. That frenzied mass has the leaps of a panther, the weight of an elephant, the agility of a mouse, the stubbornness of an axe, the unexpectedness of a swelling sea, the swift blows of lightning, the deafness of the tomb. It weighs ten thousand pounds, and it bounces like a child's ball. It moves in whirls abruptly cut by right angles. And what is to be done? 
how can it be overcome? A storm ceases, a cyclone passes, a wind dies down, a broken mast can be replaced, a leak can be stopped, a fire can be extinguished. But what is one to do with that enormous bronze brute? How is one to deal with it? You can reason with a mastiff, astonish a bull, fascinate a boa, frighten a tiger, move a lion to pity. With that monster, a cannon on the loose, there is no resource. You cannot kill it, for it is dead, and at the same time, it is alive. It lives with a sinister life that comes to it from the infinite. The deck beneath it swings to and fro. It is moved by the ship, which is moved by the sea, which is moved by the wind. That destroyer is a plaything. The ship, the waves, the wind, all these things control it, hence its horrible life. What can one do to that mechanism? How can one fetter that monstrous shipwrecking machine? How can one foresee its comings and goings, its returns, stops, and impacts? Any one of those blows may smash a hole in the planking. How is one to guess that frightful, wandering course? One is dealing with a projectile that changes its mind, seems to have ideas, and constantly alters its direction. How can one stop something that must be avoided? The horrible cannon flings itself about, advances, retreats, strikes left and right, flees, passes, deceives one's expectations, breaks down obstacles, and crushes men like flies. The terror of the situation lies in the mobility of the deck. How can one combat an inclined plane which has caprices? The ship has, so to speak, lightning imprisoned in its belly, trying to escape. It is like thunder rolling above an earthquake. The whole crew was on foot in an instant. The fault was the chief gunner's. He had neglected to tighten the nut of the mooring chain and had carelessly shackled the four wheels of the carronade. This had given play to the supporting plank in the slide, set the two plates at variance, and finally parted the breeching. The drag rope had broken, so that the cannon was no longer secure on its carriage. Fixed breeching, which prevents recoil, was not yet in use at that time. When a heavy wave struck the gun port, the loosely attached carronade had moved back, snapped its chain, and begun wandering formidably around the between decks. To have an idea of this strange sliding, imagine a drop of water running over a pane of glass. When the moorings broke, the gunners were on the battery deck. Some of them were in groups, the others were scattered, occupied with those tasks which sailors perform in preparation for combat. The carronade, launched by the pitching of the ship, plunged through that cluster of men and crushed four of them with the first blow. Then, drawn back and launched again by the rolling, it cut a fifth poor sailor in two, rushed toward the port wall, and crashed into another cannon, dismounting it. Hence the cry of distress which had just been heard. All the men made a dash for the ladder. The battery deck became empty in the twinkling of an eye. The enormous cannon had been left alone. It was given up to itself. It was its own master, and the master of the ship.
it could do whatever it liked with the vessel. The whole crew, accustomed to laughing in battle, now trembled. It would be impossible to describe their terror. Captain Boisberthelot and Lieutenant Lavieville, though both intrepid men, stopped at the head of the stairs, and pale and hesitant, stood looking silently down into the between-decks. Someone pushed them aside and went down. It was their passenger, the peasant, the man of whom they had been speaking only a few moments before. When he reached the foot of the ladder, he stopped. The cannon was rolling back and forth across the deck. It was like the living chariot of the apocalypse. The lantern swinging overhead added to that vision a dizzying whirl of lights and shadows. The shape of the cannon was blurred by the violence of its movement. Sometimes it appeared black in the light. Sometimes it gave off vague white reflections in the darkness. It continued its execution of the ship. It had already smashed four other cannons and made two cracks in the wall, which, though fortunately above the waterline, would leak if a squall arose. It dashed itself frenziedly against the ribs. The riders resisted, for curved wood has extraordinary solidity, but they could be heard creaking beneath the blows of that huge club, which struck from all sides at once with a kind of fantastic ubiquity. The impacts of a lead pellet shaken in a bottle would not have been wilder or more rapid. The four wheels passed back and forth over the dead men, cutting them, dismembering them, hacking them to pieces, until the five corpses had been turned into twenty stumps, rolling across the deck. The heads seemed to be crying out. Streams of blood writhed in accordance with the rolling of the ship. The inner planking, damaged in several places, was beginning to break open. The whole ship was filled with a monstrous noise. The captain quickly recovered his composure. At his orders, everything that might deaden and impede the mad blows of the cannon was thrown into the between-decks. Mattresses, hammocks, spare sails, coils of rope, sea-bags, and bundles of counterfeit paper currency, of which the corvette had a full cargo, since this English infamy was regarded as fair play. But what could those rags do? Since no one dared to go down and arrange them properly, within a few minutes they were torn to shreds. The sea was just heavy enough to make the accident as complete as possible. A storm would have been desirable. It might have turned the cannon over, and once its four wheels were in the air, it could have been mastered. But the havoc was growing worse. There were abrasions and even fractures in the masts, which, embedded in the framework of the keel, rise through the decks of a ship like great round pillars. Beneath the convulsive battering of the cannon, the mizzenmast had cracked, and even the mainmast was damaged. The battery was being broken up. Ten of the thirty cannons were now disabled. More breaches were being made in the planking, and the corvette was beginning to leak. The old passenger, who had gone down to the gun-deck, looked like a man of stone at the foot of the stairs. He cast a stern glance over that devastation. He did not move. It seemed impossible to go any further. Each movement of the liberated carronade threatened to destroy the vessel. Within a short time, shipwreck 
would be inevitable. Unless the disaster was cut short, everyone on board would perish. A decision had to be made. But which decision? What a combatant that cannon was. That terrifying maniac had to be stopped. That lightning had to be seized. That thunder had to be brought down and held fast. Boisberthelot said to La Vieville, Do you believe in God, Chevalier? La Vieville answered, Yes. No. Sometimes. In a storm? Yes. And at times like this. You're right. Only God can save us now, said Boisberthelot. Everyone remained silent, letting the carronade continue its horrible uproar. Outside, the pounding of the waves against the ship answered the blows of the cannon. It was like two alternating hammers. Suddenly, in that inaccessible amphitheater, where the escaped cannon was leaping and bounding, a man appeared with an iron bar in his hand. It was the author of the catastrophe, the man guilty of the negligence that had caused the accident, the gunner in charge of the carronade. Having brought about the disaster, he wanted to put an end to it. He had taken an iron lever in one hand, a rope with a slipknot in the other, and jumped down onto the gun deck. Then a wild, titanic spectacle began. A combat of the gun against the gunner. A battle between matter and intelligence. A duel between an object and a man. The man stood in a corner holding his iron bar and his rope in his fists. Backed up against a rider, firmly planted on his legs as on two pillars of steel, livid, calm, tragic, looking as though he were rooted to the deck, he waited. He was waiting for the cannon to pass near him. The gunner knew his gun, and it seemed to him that it must know him. He had lived with it for a long time. How often he thrust his hand into its throat. It was his tame monster. He began speaking to it, as though to a dog. Come, he said. Perhaps he loved it. But to come to him would be to come at him, and then he would be lost. How could he avoid being crushed? That was the question. Everyone looked at him, terrified. Not one chest was breathing freely, except perhaps that of the old man who stood in the between-decks with the two combatants, like a sinister second. He himself might be crushed by the gun. He did not move. Beneath them, the blind waves directed the combat. At the moment when, accepting that frightful hand-to-hand -hand struggle, the gunner went forward to challenge the gun, the movement of the sea happened to make it stay still for an instant, as though stupefied. "'Come on,' he said to it. It seemed to listen. Suddenly it leapt toward him. He slipped aside. The struggle began, an extraordinary struggle, the fragile grappling with the invulnerable. A gladiator of flesh attacking a beast of bronze. On one side, force. On the other, a soul. It all took place in semi-darkness. It was like an indistinct vision of a wonder. A soul. Strangely enough, the cannon seemed to have one too, but a soul of hatred and rage. 
that blindness appeared to have eyes. The monster acted as though it were watching the man. There was cunning in that mass, or at least one might have thought so. It, too, was waiting to choose its moment. It was like some sort of gigantic metal insect which had, or seemed to have, the will of a demon. Occasionally that colossal grasshopper would strike the low ceiling, then fall back down on its four wheels like a tiger on its four paws, and begin rushing at the man again. Lithe, agile, and adroit, he twisted and turned like a snake before all those lightning-swift movements. He avoided all encounters, but the blows he dodged struck the ship and continued to demolish it. A piece of broken chain remained attached to the carronade. This chain had somehow wrapped itself around the breech screw. One end of it was fastened to the carriage. The other, unattached, swung wildly around the cannon, exaggerating all its abrupt changes of direction. The screw held it like a clenched hand, and the chain, adding its lash strokes to the blows of the battering ram, made a terrible whirlwind around the cannon an iron whip in a bronze fist. That chain complicated the combat. The man fought, nevertheless. Sometimes it was even the man who attacked the cannon. He crept along the planking, holding his bar and his rope. The cannon appeared to understand, and fled as though it had sensed a trap. The man, formidable, pursued it. Such things cannot last long. The cannon suddenly seemed to say to itself, Come, it's time to finish this. And it stopped. One could feel the end approaching. The cannon, as if in suspense, seemed to have, or had, for it was a conscious being to everyone present, a fierce premeditation. Suddenly it rushed toward the gunner. He stepped aside, let it pass, and shouted to it, laughing, Try again! The cannon, as if in a fury, broke a carronade on the port side, then, seized again by the invisible sling that held it, flung itself to starboard toward the man, who escaped. Three carronades collapsed beneath the thrust of the cannon. Then, as though blind and not knowing what it was doing, it turned its back on the man, rolled forward, cracked the stem, and made a breach in the planking of the bow. The gunner had taken refuge at the foot of the stairs, a few paces from the watching old man. The gunner held his iron bar at rest. The cannon appeared to perceive him, and without bothering to turn around, backed toward him with the abruptness of an axe stroke. Driven against the side of the ship, the man seemed to be lost. The whole crew uttered a cry. But the old passenger, motionless until now, sprang forward with greater rapidity than any of those fierce movements. He had picked up a bundle of counterfeit paper currency, and at the risk of being crushed, he succeeded in throwing it between the wheels of the carronade. This decisive and perilous action would not have been performed with more skill and precision by a man trained in all the exercises described in Duracell's book on the handling of naval cannons. The bundle acted as a buffer. A pebble can stop a block of stone. A tree branch can turn an avalanche. The carronade stumbled. The gunner, seizing this desperate chance, plunged his iron bar between the spokes of one of the rear wheels. The cannon stopped. It tilted. 
the man tilted it still further by using his bar as a lever. The heavy mass turned over with the sound of a falling bell. The man dashed up to it, streaming with sweat, and passed the slipknot over the bronze neck of the overthrown monster. It was ended. The man had conquered. The ant had overcome the mastodon. The pygmy had captured the thunderbolt. The marines and the sailors clapped their hands. The whole crew hurried to the cannon with cables and chains, and in an instant it was firmly secured. The gunner saluted the passenger. Sir, he said to him, you have saved my life. The old man had resumed his impassive attitude and did not answer. The man had conquered, but it could be said that the cannon had conquered also. Immediate shipwreck had been avoided, but the corvette had not been saved. The damage to the vessel seemed irreparable. There were five breaches in the planking, including a very large one in the bow. Twenty of the thirty carronades were lying on their cradles. The carronade which had been captured and rechained was also disabled. The breech screw was jammed, and it was therefore impossible to aim the gun. The battery was reduced to nine cannons. The hold was leaking. It was necessary to set about repairing the damage immediately, and to start the pumps working. The between-decks, now that it was possible to look at it, was frightening to see. The inside of a mad elephant's cage could not have been more thoroughly demolished. However great the necessity for the corvette to remain unseen, there was a still more pressing necessity immediate emergency repairs. The deck had been lighted by a few lanterns placed here and there along the sides. Meanwhile, during the whole time this tragic diversion had lasted, the crew had been so absorbed by the question of life or death that they had little awareness of what was happening outside the corvette. The fog had thickened. The weather had changed. The wind had been driving the ship at will. They were off course within sight of Jersey and Guernsey, farther south than they ought to be. They now found themselves in a stormy sea. Big waves rolled up to place dangerous kisses on the gaping wounds of the corvette. The rocking of the sea was threatening. The breeze was turning into a strong north wind. A squall, perhaps a storm, was arising. It was impossible to see more than four waves ahead. While the crew was hastily and summarily repairing the damage to the between-decks, stopping the leaks and putting back into position the guns that had escaped the disaster, the old passenger had gone up on deck. He stood with his back against the mainmast. He had not noticed a movement that had taken place on board the ship. The Chevalier de la Vieuville had ordered the Marines to line up on either side of the mainmast and at the sound of the boatswain's whistle, the sailors working in the rigging stood up on the yard-arms. The Count du Bois-Berthelot advanced toward the passenger. Behind the captain walked a haggard, panting man whose clothes were in disorder, but who looked satisfied. It was the gunner, who had just so opportunely shown himself to be a tamer of monsters, and who had gotten the better of the cannon. The Count saluted the old man wearing peasant clothes and said to him, General, here is the man.
the gunner stood in a military posture, with his eyes lowered. The Count du Berthelot went on. General, considering what this man has done, don't you think there's something for his commanders to do? Yes, I do, said the old man. Please give the orders, said Berthelot. It's you who should give the orders. You're the captain. But you're the general, said Berthelot. The old man looked at the gunner. Approach, he said. The gunner stepped forward. The old man turned to the Count de Berthelot, unfastened the captain's cross of St. Louis, and attached it to the gunner's jacket. Hooray! cried the sailors. The marines presented arms. The old passenger, pointing to the dazzled gunner, added, And now have this man shot. The cheering was succeeded by stupefaction. Then, in the midst of a silence like that of the tomb, the old man raised his voice. One man's negligence has endangered this ship. At this very moment she may be lost. To be at sea is to be in the presence of the enemy. A ship making a crossing is an army fighting a battle. The storm hides, but is not absent. The whole sea is an ambush. Any mistake committed in the presence of the enemy is punished by death. There are no repairable mistakes. Courage must be rewarded, and negligence must be punished. These words fell one after the other, slowly, solemnly, with a kind of inexorable measure, like the blows of an axe against an oak. The old man looked at the soldiers and said, Do your duty. The man on whose jacket shone the cross of St. Louis bowed his head. At a sign from the Count du Bois-Berthelot, two sailors went down into the between-decks, then returned, bringing the hammock that would be used as a shroud. The ship's chaplain, who had been praying in the officers' quarters since the departure, accompanied the two sailors. A sergeant detached twelve marines from the formation and arranged them in two ranks of six men each. The gunner placed himself between the two lines without a word. The chaplain, crucifix in hand, advanced and stood beside him. "'Forward, march!' said the sergeant. The squad slowly moved toward the bow. The two sailors, carrying the shroud, followed. A gloomy silence fell over the corvette. A storm was blowing in the distance. A few moments later there was a flash and an explosion in the darkness. Then all was quiet, and a body was heard falling into the sea. The old passenger, still standing with his back against the mainmast, had folded his arms across his chest with a thoughtful expression. Boisberthelot, pointing to him with the forefinger of his left hand, said softly to La Vieuville, Vendée has a leader. But what was going to become of the corvette? The clouds, which had mingled with the waves all night, had finally come down so low that there was no longer any horizon, and the sea seemed to be covered with a cloak. There was nothing but fog, a situation that is always perilous, even for a ship in good condition. To the mist was added the heavy sea. The time had been put to good use. 
the corvette had been lightened by throwing overboard everything that could be removed from the havoc wrought by the carronade the dismounted cannons, the broken carriages, the twisted or unnailed ribs, the shattered pieces of wood and iron. The portholes had been opened, and the corpses and bits of human debris, wrapped in tarpaulins, had been slid down planks into the waves. The sea was becoming unmanageable. Not that the storm was imminent. On the contrary, it seemed that it could be heard decreasing as it roared beyond the horizon, and the squall was moving off to the north but the waves were still very high, which indicated that the sea was agitated in its depths. Crippled as she was, the corvette could offer little resistance to the jolts, and the big waves might be fatal to her. Gacquois was at the helm, thoughtful. Those who command at sea are accustomed to making the best of a bad situation. La Vieuville, who was the kind of man who is gay in a disaster, went up to Gacquois. "'Well, pilot,' he said, "'the storm has missed fire. "'It wants to sneeze, but can't. "'We'll get through. "'We'll have some wind, that's all.' "'Gacquois replied seriously, "'Where there's wind, there are waves.' "'Neither smiling nor sad, such is the sailor.' "'The reply had a disquieting meaning. "'For a leaking ship, to encounter high waves is to fill up quickly.' Gacquois had emphasized this forecast with a frown. Perhaps La Vieuville had spoken light-hearted and almost jovial words a little too soon after the catastrophe of the gun and the gunner. There are things which bring bad luck at sea. The sea is secretive. One never knows what it is likely to do. One must be on one's guard. La Vieuville felt a need to resume his gravity. "'Where are we, pilot?' he asked." the pilot answered, "'We're in God's will.' A pilot is a master. He must always be allowed to do as he wishes, and often to say whatever he pleases. This kind of man speaks little, however. La Vieuville walked away. He had asked a question of the pilot. It was the horizon which replied. The sea suddenly cleared. The mists that had been spread over its surface were torn apart. The dark agitation of the waves extended as far as the eye could see in shadowy half-light, and here is what became visible. The sky was blanketed with clouds, but these clouds were no longer touching the sea. In the east appeared a pallor that was dawn. In the west was another pallor, growing fainter, that was the setting of the moon. These two pallors, facing each other on the horizon, formed two narrow streaks of wan light between the gloomy sea and the somber sky. Against these two streaks of light one could see black, motionless, erect silhouettes. To the west, against the moonlit sky, were three tall rocks, standing upright like Celtic meniers. To the east, against the pale morning horizon, rose eight sails, spaced out in a formidable array. The three rocks were a reef. The eight sails were a squadron. Behind the corvette was the Menkier, a rock that had an evil reputation. In front of her was the French cruising fleet. To the west of her was the abyss. To the east was carnage. She was between shipwreck and combat.
To confront the reef, she had a pierced hull, disjointed rigging, and masts weakened at their roots. To confront a battle, she had a battery in which twenty-one out of thirty cannons were disabled, and whose best gunners were dead. The dawn was very faint, and a little darkness still lay ahead. This darkness might even last for a rather long time, since it was caused chiefly by thick, high clouds, which had the appearance of a solid vault. The wind that had finally blown away the lower miss was driving the corvette toward the manquier. In her state of extreme strain and dilapidation, she scarcely obeyed the helm. She rolled rather than sailed, and passively let herself be slapped by the waves. The manquier, a tragic reef, was even more ruthless then than it is now. Several towers of that citadel of the abyss have been raised by the incessant cutting of the sea. The configuration of reefs changes. It is not without reason that waves are also called lam, blades. Each tide is the stroke of a saw. In those days, to strike the manquier was to perish. As for the cruising fleet, it was the squadron of Cancal, which later became famous under the command of Captain Duchesne, whom Lequinio called Father Duchesne. The situation was critical. During the frenzy of the carronade, the corvette had drifted off course, unknown to those on board, and moved toward Granville rather than Saint-Malo. Even if she had been able to sail, the manquier would still have barred her return toward Jersey, while the cruising fleet prevented her from reaching France. There was no storm, but, as the pilot had said, there were waves. The sea, rolling beneath a stiff wind and above a rough bottom, was savage. The sea never says immediately what it wants. There is everything in its depths, even trickery. It might almost be said to have a fixed pattern of behavior. It advances and retreats, makes a proposal and retracts it, begins a squall and gives it up, promises the abyss and goes back on its word, threatens the north and strikes the south. All night long the corvette Claymore had had fog and the fear of a gale. The sea had just contradicted itself, but in a ferocious manner. It had suggested a storm and brought forth a reef. This still meant shipwreck in another form and to destruction by the rocks was added extermination by combat. One enemy complimented the other. La Vieville laughed valiantly and cried out, A shipwreck here and a battle there. Our luck is holding out in both directions. The corvette was by now little more than a wreck. In the wan diffused light, in the blackness of the clouds, in the mysterious wrinkling of the waves, there was a sepulchral solemnity. Except for the blowing of the hostile wind, all was still. Catastrophe was rising majestically from the depths. It was more like an apparition than an attack. Nothing stirred among the rocks. Nothing moved on the ships. There was a kind of colossal silence. Were the men on the corvette dealing with something real? It was as though a dream were passing over the sea. Such visions appear in legends. The corvette was, so to speak, between a demon reef and a phantom fleet. 
The Count de Boisberthelot gave orders in a low voice to La Vieuville, who went down to the gun deck. Then the captain took his telescope and went aft to stand beside the pilot. Gacqual's whole effort was to keep the corvette headed into the waves, for she would inevitably have capsized if she had been struck from the side by the wind and the sea. Where are we, pilot? asked the captain. Off the manquier. On which side? The bad one. What's the bottom? Loose rocks. Can we moor broadside on? We can always die, said the pilot. The captain turned his telescope to the west and examined the manquier. Then he turned it to the east and studied the ships in sight. The pilot went on, as though talking to himself. There's the manquier. It's a resting place for the Pewit gulls when they leave Holland, and for the big, black-backed gulls. Meanwhile, the captain had counted the ships. There were indeed eight vessels correctly deployed, raising their warlike profiles above the water. In the center was the tall shape of a three-decker. The captain questioned the pilot. Do you know those ships? Of course, replied Gacqual. What are they? They're the squadron. Of France? Of the devil. There was a silence. The captain went on. Is the whole cruising fleet there? Not all of it. On April 2nd, Valaze had announced to the convention that ten frigates and six men of war were cruising in the channel. The captain recalled this. That's true, he said. The quadrant is composed of sixteen ships, and there are only eight here. The rest of them, said Gacqual, are moving over there, all along the coast, keeping a lookout. Looking through his telescope, the captain murmured, One three-decker, two first-class frigates, five second-class ones. But I've spotted them, too, muttered Gacqual. They're good ships, said the captain. I've more or less commanded all of them. I've seen them from close up, said Gacqual. I don't mistake one for the other. I have their descriptions in my head. The captain handed his telescope to the pilot. Pilot, can you make out the three-decker? Yes, captain. It's the Cote d'Or. Which they've renamed, said the captain. She used to be the Etat de Bourgogne, a new ship, a hundred and twenty-eight guns. He took out a notebook and a pencil from his pocket and wrote down the figure, one hundred twenty-eight. He continued, Pilot, What's the first ship on the left? The Experimente, a first-class frigate, fifty-two guns. She was fitted out at Brest two months ago. The captain wrote the figure fifty-two in his notebook. Pilot, he said, what's the second ship on the left? The Driad, a first-class frigate, forty eighteen-pounders. She's been to India. She has a fine naval record and he wrote the figure 40 below the figure 52. Then, raising his head, now on the right, Captain, they're all second-class frigates. There are five of them. What's the first one after the three-decker? The Resolu. 32 18-pounders. And the second? The Richemont. Same armament. And the next? The Athe. Atheist. An odd name to go to sea with. And next, the Calypso. Next, the Preneuse. Five frigates with thirty-two guns each. 
the captain wrote 160 below the first figures. Pilot, he said, do you recognize them clearly? Yes, captain, and you know them well, replied Yaqual. To recognize is something, to know is better. The captain's eyes were fixed on his notebook. He was adding up figures, mumbling between his teeth. A hundred and twenty-eight, fifty-two, forty, a hundred and sixty. Just then, Laviaville came up on deck again. Chevalier, the captain cried out to him, we are facing three hundred and eighty cannons. So be it, said Laviaville. You've just come from an inspection, Laviaville. Exactly how many guns do we have that are capable of firing? Nine. So be it, Boisberthelot said in his turn. He took the telescope from the pilot's hands and looked at the horizon. The eight silent black ships seemed motionless, but they were growing larger. They were approaching imperceptibly. Laviaville saluted. Captain, he said, here is my report. I mistrusted this corvette Claymore from the start. It's always annoying to embark suddenly on a ship that doesn't know you, or doesn't like you. An English ship is a traitor to the French. That damned carronade has proved it. I've inspected the ship. Good anchors. They're not made of impure iron. They're forged from bars joined under a drop hammer. The anchor rings are solid. Excellent cables. Easy to pay out. Regulation length. A hundred and twenty fathoms. A good supply of ammunition. Six gunners dead. A hundred and seventy-one rounds per gun. Because there are only nine guns left, murmured the captain. He pointed his telescope at the horizon. The squadron was still slowly approaching. Carronades have one advantage. Three men are enough to handle them. But they have one drawback. They do not shoot as far or as accurately as cannons. It was therefore necessary to let the squadron get within range of the carronades. The captain gave his orders in a low voice. Silence fell over the ship. No signal was given to prepare for battle, but the preparations were made. The corvette was no more in condition to fight against men than against the waves. The crew did the best they could with that remnant of a warship. In the gangway, near the tiller ropes, they piled up all the spare hawsers and tow-ropes for strengthening the masts, if necessary. The station for wounded men was put in order. In accordance with naval procedure of the time, padded cloth was hung above the deck, which provides protection against bullets, but not against cannonballs. Gauges were brought for checking the diameter of the balls. It was a little late for this, but no one had foreseen so many incidents. Each sailor received a cartridge pouch and put a pair of pistols and a dagger in his belt. They folded their hammocks, pointed the carronades, prepared the muskets, laid out the axes and grappling irons, made ready the stores of balls and powder bags, and opened the powder magazine. Each man took his post. Everything was done without a word as though in the room of a dying man. It was rapid and gloomy. Then they moored the corvette broadside on. She had six anchors, like a frigate. All six of them were lowered. The sheet anchor forward, the kedge anchor aft, 
the flood anchor toward the open sea, the ebb anchor toward the reef, the small bower to starboard, and the best bower to port. The nine carronades, still in working order, were all placed on one side, facing the enemy. The squadron had also completed its maneuvers, with equal silence. The eight ships were arranged in a semicircle, of which the manquier formed the cord. The claymore, enclosed in that semicircle, and held fast by her own anchors, had her back to the reef, that is, to shipwreck. It was like a pack of hounds around a wild boar, silent but showing their teeth. It seemed that each side was waiting for the other. The Claymore's gunners were at their guns. Boisberthelot said to La Vieuville, I'd like to be the one to open fire. A coquette's pleasure, said La Vieuville. The passenger had not left the deck. He had been watching everything impassively. Boisberthelot walked up to him and said, Sir, the preparations have been made. We are now holding fast to our grave. We won't let go. We're prisoners of either the squadron or the reef. We have no choice but to yield to the enemy or founder on the rocks. One resource is left to us. To die. It's better to fight than to be wrecked. I'd rather be shot than drowned. As far as death is concerned, I prefer fire to water. But dying is our affair, not yours. You're the man chosen by the princes. You have a great mission, to direct the war in Vendée. Without you, the monarchy might be lost, so you must live. Our honor is to stay here. Yours is to go. You're going to leave the ship, General. I'm going to give you a man and a boat. It's not impossible to reach shore by a roundabout course. It's not daylight yet. The waves are high and the sea is dark. You'll escape. There are cases when to flee is to conquer. The old man gravely nodded his stern head. The Count du Bois-Berthelot raised his voice. Marines and sailors, he cried. All movement stopped, and from every point of the ship faces turned toward the captain. He continued. The man who is among us represents the king. He has been entrusted to us. We must save him. He is necessary to the throne of France. In the absence of a prince, he will be, at least such is our expectation, the leader of Vendée. He is a great war officer. He was to have landed in France with us. He must now land without us. To save the head is to save everything. Yes, yes, cried the voices of the whole crew. The captain went on. He, too, is going to run grave risks. It won't be easy to reach the coast. The boat should be big to face the high waves, and small to escape from the enemy fleet. It must land at some safe point on the coast, preferably in the direction of Fougere, rather than toward Coutances. A strong sailor is going to be needed, a good oarsman and a good swimmer, a man who comes from this region and knows the channels. There's enough darkness left to enable the boat to leave the corvette without being seen. And then there will be smoke, which will hide it more completely. Its small size will help it make its way through the shallows. Where the panther is caught, the weasel escapes. 
There's no way out for us, but there is a way out for the boat. It will be rowed away. The enemy ships won't see it. And besides, we'll be amusing them here in the meantime. Is that settled? Yes, yes, cried the crew. There's not a minute to lose, said the captain. Is there a man who will volunteer? A sailor stepped out of the ranks in the darkness and said, I will. A short time later, one of those small boats which are known as gigs and are reserved for the captain's own use moved away from the ship. In this boat there were two men, the old passenger in the stern and the sailor who had volunteered in the bow. The night was still very dark. In accordance with the captain's instructions, the sailor was rowing vigorously toward the manquier. Furthermore, no other course was possible. A few provisions had been thrown into the boat, a bag of biscuits, a smoked beef tongue, and a cask of water. Just as the gig touched the sea, La Vieuville, bantering even in the face of doom, leaned over the rudder post of the corvette and laughingly called out this farewell to the boat. It's good for escaping, and excellent for drowning. Sir, said the pilot, let's not joke any more. The departure was made quickly, and there was soon a good distance between the corvette and the boat. The wind and waves were in the oarsman's favor, and the boat fled swiftly, rocking in the semi-darkness and hidden by the high folds of the waves. A kind of somber expectation hung over the sea. Suddenly, amid that vast and tumultuous silence of the ocean, arose a voice which, magnified by the megaphone as by the brazen mask of ancient comedy, sounded almost superhuman. It was the voice of Captain Boisberthelot. "'Marines of the King,' he cried, "'nail the white flag to the mainmast. We are about to see our last sunrise.' And the corvette's guns were fired." "'Long live the king!' cried the crew. Then, from the horizon, came another cry, immense, distant, confused, yet distinct. "'Long live the Republic!' And a noise like the sound of three hundred thunderbolts burst from the depths of the ocean. The battle had begun. The sea became covered with smoke and fire. The waves were splashed by the jets of foam thrown up by cannonballs striking the water. The claymore began spitting flame at the eight ships. At the same time, the whole squadron, grouped around the claymore in a half-moon, opened fire with all its guns. The horizon was aflame. It was as though a volcano were rising from the sea. The wind twisted that immense crimson of battle in which the ships appeared and disappeared like phantoms. In the foreground, the black outline of the corvette stood out against that red background. The lilied banner could be seen at the tip of the mainmast. The two men in the gig remained silent. The triangular shallows of the manquier, a kind of underwater trinacria, are larger than the entire island of Jersey. The sea covers it. Its uppermost portion is a plateau which emerges from even the highest tides, and from which six mighty rocks rise to the northeast, standing in a straight line, and giving the impression of a great wall crumbling here and there. 
only boats drawing very little water can go through the strait between the plateau and the six rocks. Beyond this strait is the open sea. The sailor who had undertaken to row the boat headed into the strait. He thus put the manquier between the battle and his boat. He skillfully made his way through the narrow channel, avoiding the reefs on the other side. The rocks now hid the battle. The glow on the horizon and the furious din of the guns were beginning to lessen because of the increasing distance. But from the continuation of the firing, it was clear that the corvette was holding firm, and that she was determined to fire every one of her hundred and seventy-one broadsides. Soon the boat was in safe water, beyond the reef, away from the battle, out of range of the guns. Gradually the surface of the sea became less dark. The gleaming areas, abruptly drowned in blackness, became broader. Complicated networks of foam were shattered into flashes of light. White spots floated on the slopes of the waves. Daylight appeared. The boat was beyond the enemy's reach but the most difficult part of the task still remained to be done. The boat was safe from gunfire, but not from the danger of sinking. It was on the high seas, an almost imperceptible shell, without a deck, a sail, a mast, or a compass, with no resource except oars, in the presence of the ocean and the storm, an atom at the mercy of giants. Then, in that immensity, in that solitude, the sailor in the bow of the boat raised his face, made pale by the light of dawn, stared at the old passenger in the stern, and said to him, I'm the brother of the man you ordered shot 